Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991. From the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between, we will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct video Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Europa. Thank you for joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. Europa tells the story of American Leopold Kessler, who has moved to Germany in 1945. His uncle has gotten him a job working as a train conductor. Shortly after starting his position, he meets and becomes entangled with Kate, the daughter of the train company's owner. The train tracks may be straight, but Leo's course through post-World War II Germany is not. Screenplay by Lars von Trier and Niels Vorsel, directed by Lars von Trier, and exhibited at the Cannes Film Festival on May 12, 1991. Have you seen Europa before? No, I haven't. Have you seen Zentropa, as it was released originally no. in the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this, this movie was originally released as Zentropa, uh, but we now know it as Europa. The reason for that, I don't know if you saw, was because there was a 1990 movie called Europa, Europa. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to cause any sort of confusion or, um, you know, assumption that they're connected in some way. Yeah. Um, so Zentropa is actually the name of the train or the train company that's uh, central to the plot of this movie. Um, yeah, I had not seen it before either. I've seen very little Lars von Trier stuff. I saw Dancer in the Dark in college. And that's probably Oh, it. really? It's <laughs> probably it. <laughs> I've seen a couple others. It's just... Um, they're all depressing. And that's why I don't like go out of my way to watch these movies. Right, they're supposed to be, you know... They're just good, either... Good, but... They're good, but depressing, or just very disturbing. Yeah, Which you have to have I ha- a certain mindset. Yeah, I have to be in a certain mood to watch these movies, and like 90% of the time, I'm not in the mood. Mm-hmm. Like, Dancer in the Dark was really good. I love that movie, but I could never watch it again. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, this movie did not depress me, though. No. This, but it, it, I know he... He does these trilogies, which I know this was part of one of his trilogies that he did. Yeah, which we didn't watch either of the other two. Yeah. Uh, basically, they're they're not really trilogies in terms of just yeah plot and people. It's more um, thematical yeah. trilogies is what he tries to do. So Element of Crime and Epidemic uh, were the first two, which he um, produced. And Niels Vorsel wrote both of those as well. Um, so we don't really have anything to compare it to uh, in terms of that. But yeah, I would agree. This isn't incredibly depressing. Maybe it's because it is a period piece. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, it was during like, you know, at the end of World War II, two, so that was a depressing time. Especially so for the Germany. subject. Yeah, yeah. The subject matter in that 
is depressing, but this movie didn't make me feel depressed. Yeah, like I didn't really have a lot of um, attachment to. Yeah, this the was like character. an educational movie or something. <laughs> I don't know. I guess you could say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so even yeah, I didn't. I didn't really have any sort of attachment to Leo Kessler, even though. You know, as Americans, we're probably supposed to see ourselves in him to a degree. Yeah. And also the fact that they throw the narration at you from the start that basically, I guess it's told in second person is the, I, I, I'm not really 100% sure on like first, second, third person perspectives, but basically the narrator is telling us that we are the lead character, right? So when he's narrating, yeah. he's saying, you are now going to go through this thing. Mm-hmm. You have now entered this party. And he's talking about Leo, but it's a narrator. So Leo doesn't hear it, we hear it. So Yeah. But even with all of that, or maybe because the narrator is present and, you know, um, obviously telling us that we're part of this story by being there, that maybe that sort of takes the connection out. I don't know. Um, but the narration is very hypnotic in style mm-hmm. and, um, and immediately the movie does sort of like put, it put me sort of in a trance because you're like the very first shot mm-hmm. is looking down, you're on a train, you see the tracks in, uh, basically illuminated by like a headlight because you have, uh, pitch black in like the upper third corner or upper third part of the screen and yeah max von Sydow is just counting from one to ten saying you're gonna fall deeper and deeper into europa as you go through and yeah it's meant to be like hypnotic and you have like this weird visual and it really sets the tone in terms of what you're going to see um in the black and white portions of this um, and then as you count how, as he counted higher, the camera moved more and more out of focus, getting closer to the track and then it just sort of faded into the actual thing. And that's when we get our first little bit of color as well. Yeah. Uh, so the movie has a mix of color and black and white. It's primarily black and white, but the color is there is, is used there to accentuate things. Um, probably the most common example I could probably give would be Schindler's List where you have like the one girl in the red but Uh, this is much more frequent yeah I was trying to find ways like I thought there would have been a theme like is he trying to yeah why was the color used yeah why was the color color but I was trying to find that out and I couldn't find a reason do you have any thoughts even though you couldn't find an answer online as to what you think it, it was. was mostly like theories, during like really emotional old. parts yeah so uh, it was like some sort of it was mostly like when he was feeling some sort of emotion or even not even him because it's like we should do like a trigger warning because there is like well i mean this the subject matter of this movie is <laughs> yes. like a trigger warning about world war Two, and you know like the pro-nazi movement but then also like when the father is in the bathroom right 
cutting himself. Uh-huh. That was an emotional scene. Yeah. And that was in color. That was, that was the most color that they had. Um, so it was like during... Yeah, emotional scenes, I guess. But yeah, it, was, it was mostly like between him and Kate. Right. When they saw, like the first time they saw each other, like when he first looked at her, she was in color. But she was when, in color, but he was in black and white. And he was, but when yeah. she looked at him, he was like in color and she was in black and white. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure out something. I, I think we're, I think you're on the right track with that. The, but yeah, everything that I came up with doesn't fully hold. Um, like I thought maybe it was to represent when they're like the most vulnerable emotionally. Okay. Or when their guard is, you know, down, down the most or just acting on like pure instinct. Mm. Right. So like he's cutting himself and like the blood is just there. And like when they're rushing to him in the bathroom, you know, they're not thinking they're just acting. Mm-hmm. So like that's when they're at their most pure, maybe, I don't know. So, I don't know, that, that's the best thing I could think of, but there are definitely other times in the movie where, if that were the case, then, you know, color would be used in, in other sequences too. And also, um, we're kind of jumping around on the plot, but like when the father, uh, Max, uh, had to do the, the test, the, yeah. the test itself was in color, but he was in black and white. So that kind of like threw my theory out the water, you know, out, out the window well, there too. I, yeah, I don't so, know. It was because he was nervous or something, and I, but I don't know why the test itself yeah. was. So I didn't but, know, yeah. like, was that supposed to mean, like, truth? But obviously the test turned out to not be true either. So, like, I don't know. I couldn't really think of a, a reason. Um, I'm sure dozens of, like... There's like bloggers, horror. yeah, I don't know, <laughs> like dozens of of honors Theorists university papers yeah. have been written about this, uh, but we couldn't figure it out. If you have your theories, let us know. But it really acts as a nice visual dynamic, um, even though it doesn't really need it. I also thought that maybe the color was just another way to sort of separate or distract you for some of the other movie making techniques that he was using in this okay. uh, because they use rear projection a lot in mm-hmm. this movie so these days you'd probably see a lot of green screen type of effects where you know you have somebody in front of a green screen and then you use a computer in post-production to change the scene in these cases it's rear projection which was much more common in like the 30s or so um like you can King Kong, the original King Kong is, is a good example of this too. Um, they have a pre-filmed thing that they're actually showing on a screen behind them mm-hmm. and they're acting to it. So they're not acting to blankness, they're actually acting towards something that has been previously done and they're interacting with it um, in, in certain times. So you can have like a character who was filmed previously and then the character in the foreground in color reacting to the black and white footage behind them. So that could be part of it as well. It's just like a way to separate that and try to maybe make it a little bit less noticeable because I noticed that the color shots were a lot grainier than the pure black and white footage. Yeah, I don't know if that was meant to be on purpose. Yeah, I don't know either. I I don't know if the color footage was actually shot on color film. 
Because it, it kind of was like Wizard of Oz, you know, when everything turns into color. Like, how mm-hmm. that, that type of color. Yeah, or like a Ted Turner colorization type of a thing, where it's all done after the fact. It does have this weird, like, uncan- uncanny valley feeling because the colors aren't exact because someone's basically just interpreting it based off of the shades of gray. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's part of what's happening here, too. Um, obviously, we don't have the Criterion DVD, and we did not watch the yeah, director's commentary, have... <laughs> so maybe Lars von Trier addresses all of this is in, in some of that, but I don't know. It was interesting to watch from that perspective. Yeah, so visually, the movie is absolutely stunning and hypnotic in that way. I found myself just locked on the screen just to see what would be done visually next, mm-hmm. which I also think is kind of weird that it came from Lars von Trier in that way, that there is like so much thought and for, you know, planning (laughs) that had to go into making this movie. And it's coming from the guy who helped form Dogma 95. Like, do you know, do you know anything about that film movement at all? No. Okay. So that's something that came about around 1995. Mm -hmm. Lars von Trier and a couple other filmmakers uh, basically created like a set of rules that said, you know, here's like a new way of filmmaking. Um, And it's basically like handheld cameras, usually digital video. Um, You can only use the lighting that exists at the locations. Everything has to be at location, no set, you know, all natural lighting. You know, you can't bring props. You have to use whatever's there. Hmm. You know, all kinds of different tenets of basically is like running gun filmmaking Um, to sort of set themselves apart from like a studio type of system okay so it's like this guy who created this intricate very meticulously detailed movie is now going off and basically just making the precursor to somebody making a movie on their iphone yeah (laughs) so it's just weird that that's the same person to me but anyway um if anyone out there has seen the movie the idiots from Lars von Trier, that was his Dogma 95 movie. Julian Donkey Boy uh, was yeah, one of them. Okay. Um, Lovers, who was directed by Jean-Marc Barr, who played Leopold Kessler. That was also another one. So, there's only a few that were officially given the title of Dogma 95, but it has like a, you know, uh, a creed that you can look up out there. So anyway, visually it's stunning. Story-wise, I I was confused a lot. Was it the timeline? I mean, everything progressed in a normal timeline. They didn't jump back and forth, but yeah. What, but what, what was it that confused you most? I think how when thing I just didn't know how many. I don't want to say timeline, but just things fast forward too much, and I was like, how far off are we? Mm. Because I know there were points where, you know, the narrator was like, now we fast forward a month to Christmas. Yeah. But, I mean, how much more time has passed after or before that? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. Or when, you know, Kate asked him to marry her and then they automatically she's like will you marry me and or she said she doesn't even say will you marry she's just like let's get married and then they're like okay and then it turns around they're in front of like a pastor or whoever yeah and they're getting shot 
all within seconds. So I was like, how long did that... I know that's (laughs) supposed to be, like, visually great and stuff, but I was like, did it happen the next day? Or, like, how long are we talking here? Like, years? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of touches on different topics of post-war Germany mm-hmm. without getting into too much detail on any specific one. And it, at the same time, is also trying to progress this story of Leo as the conductor of the sleeping car. Yeah. And when we say conductor, the American definition is much different than what they're talking about here. He's basically like an usher or like an attendant. Like a bellhop. But yeah. for the train, the sleeping, sleeper trains. He's, yeah, he's a service member. He's shining the shoes. He's getting people new sheets or drinks or whatever. Like, he's, yeah. he's there as, like, the attendant for the that specific car of the train. Um, and his uncle is as well. Uh, he typically gets drunk and passes out in the, the little kitchen area and um, berates Leo on his lack of professionalism. So there's this whole through line of him trying to get this job and then take a test in a few months to get a promotion Mm -hmm. that doesn't serve much purpose at all except to create sort of a madcap scenario near the end where you have um, the other plot line of the werewolves, which we haven't talked about yet at all, Mixing with his uh, relationship with Colonel Harris, the American, who is, you know, retained in Germany to do cleanup work or whatever it is. Um, And then the test is happening at the same time. So you have like these three different things and it's like that scene in Bugsy, you know, where... Yeah, he's making a cake. Yeah, where he's making a cake and has to talk to to the mob boss and whatever. Get on the phone. Um, It's like that, except not meant to be funny at all no he's like descending into madness yeah i I just felt like there's probably too much time spent on his professional job like there i didn't need to see as much as i did yeah it didn't go anywhere i wish they would have spent a little bit more time on the actual war stuff um so yeah, like I said in the in the summary paragraph, he gets the job through his uncle um, on the train, and then like immediately he meets Kate Catherine uh, Hartman, who is the daughter of the the owner of Zentropa, um, and they form a relationship or a bond immediately, and he's invited to the house um, where he meets Father Max. Mm-hmm. And the brother Larry, and uh, this priest, yeah, who is there all the time, and like an American, um... and then the American Colonel Harris, yeah, also stops by. Um, so yeah, things just sort of like happen very fast, yeah, in that regard. So. They talk. I don't know. They they don't talk a whole lot about anything but like i said they they do kind of like give little hints and jabs a lot of it is anti-american um which is fine i don't think it's necessarily pro-germany either Mm -hmm. most of the time 
But a lot of the the criticisms that they throw at Leo is basically that he, you know, avoided the war purposely, right? He did not contribute to the U.S. Um, they think it's really weird that he's in Germany trying to make a life for himself here. Yeah, uh, right after the war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so they're criticizing a lot of his choices or, or thoughts there. Um, and then slowly it seeps in that um, there's these other group of people called the werewolves, mm-hmm. which I'm not very familiar with history to know how real this was. I would assume it's quite real. It is yeah. a real, like, it's a real movement, yeah. Like a pro-Nazi terrorist movement it yeah it developed right after the war yeah i assume that it would definitely be rooted in reality mm-hmm. um so yeah there, there's this aspect about the werewolves um and how max with zentropa had ties to nazi germany because he had to sort of as a business owner if he wanted to keep his business running and he has some guilt about it and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and Larry is like sort of the black sheep who is completely anti everything that the family has done so far and uh, he's just very counterculture type of a person. Um, and then the priest is there to put a little religious spin on it, I guess. Yeah. And to play chess with the colonel here and there. Um, Colonel Harris exists for future plot reasons, uh, but in terms of like the the story here, um, I guess he's going around and he's going to. There's some sort of a test that they have to give to various different residents to find out if they have Nazi sympathies or histories, um, because if they do, then the American government or you know the Allies. Uh, could take away their businesses or dismantle whatever in the name of global security, basically. And so Max has to take this test to, you know, this questionnaire to find out what he knew, who he knew, um, where his allegiances were, and all this kind of other stuff, uh, which would then be verified by a third party. And so there's a lot of struggle about that before that test even happens though we keep going to the car the sleeping car um and it's around this time where leo unexpectedly smuggles a couple kids onto the train uh who have guns but he doesn't know that they have guns yeah um there's this person who comes up to him and says that he's a friend of Kate's, right? Is that what he said? Right, the older man? Yeah, the older man. Yeah. Siggy is, is, I don't know if they ever said his name, but that's how he's credited. Oh, okay. Played by Henning Jensen. Uh, he basically says, oh, my 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 two nephews, Protégé. these two kids that I'm, yeah. that I'm escorting have... You know, documents, they're supposed to be on this train. Can you please escort them on? Help them out. Um, all their papers are on order. And that tr- turns out a way for them to be basically smuggled onto the train. Um, where they perform an assassination on a newly appointed mayor mm-hmm. of, one of, the, uh, of one of the towns. Um, again, shown visually 
dynamically with rear projection yeah. and like shooting shooting the screen rather than the person and then you see the screen bleeding know, bleeding yeah. and all this kind of stuff so so yeah the one of the kids is shooting the older ma- the mayor mm-hmm. and yeah that scene was cool i don't know i don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to say it's cool to see someone die but yeah the I way mean, it was shot was very interesting yeah like i i was thinking how many times did that have to be timed correctly right for that kid to shoot that gun and then for, you know, the guy to fall over and bleed, like, as if it was, you know, he was getting shot at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating <laughs> the way these things were put together. And, and, you know, there's, you know, color in the foreground and yeah. projection in the background, all this kind of stuff is going on. It, it sort of it speaks to, like, okay, so the Americans basically installed this mayor and now here's these kids who are part of the werewolf movement. Uh, who have killed him. Mm-hmm. Leo feels incredible guilt about that. He's just staring at the whole scene, saying, oh my god, I caused this because he saw it was because he brought on. And then the narrator comes on again and says, we're going to count to ten, and now you're at a party. Yeah. Like, just seeing transitions again. That, um, this, these are just like, those are times where I'm confused i'm like does he what happens after that like what do they do with the body like what's going like i i don't know yeah i mean but then i'm i'm thinking you don't normally get to see that stuff in other movies from the era either if you're i know about like a 30s or 40s era movie you're not gonna yeah see... i get it it's just you know yeah the the narrator comes on it's like when i count to five you will now be at a party or whatever mm-hmm. and yeah that's what's gonna happen but then I'm like, okay, what? <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> okay, now we're here. So, but I know that's probably meant to be like that. Oh, yeah, it, it is. I think it's supposed to, like, show that he's still in this stupor. I don't think a whole lot of time has passed, but it's tough but, to know for sure. I don't, he doesn't really seem, uh, I don't know, like, phased by it or, you know, disturbed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he gets over it at a certain point because he's there with Kate, and Kate's like, I used to be a werewolf, but I'm not anymore. Will you still, like, like me? Will you still love me? Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So that all kind of happens. Um, And then meanwhile, the test is happening. The questionnaire for Max, the dad, Mm -hmm. is happening as well, like, at the same time. Um, And you see all these basically just these two-faced things sort of come together yeah um so in terms of the test basically what happens is max has to lie in order to pass because yes he clearly had nazi ties his trains took people to the concentration camps uh, because that's what had to happen Mm-hmm. in order for him to maintain his business if nothing else of whether or not he actually sympathized with the nazi movement or not he did have a part in it and then you have the uh, a jewish person who could be there as a third party to approve everything he does he he says that these lies are correct and that max like housed him during um during the war that's all a lie as well colonel harris knows it because he paid for it mm-hmm because the transportation aspect is so vital to the success of the American movement that they're going to allow this to happen rather than actually follow the laws that have been set. So a lot of duplicitous nature that's going on. 
Um, and, you know, you can take the, the war commentary as you will with that. Um, but Max is very distraught about the whole thing. He hates what just happened. He doesn't like any of it. Um, right. And so he goes into the bathroom and starts cutting himself, as we mentioned earlier. Meanwhile, uh, Catherine and Leo are upstairs in the attic at this, you know, on the model train, uh, basically making love. Yeah. <laughs> Admitting, oh, I used to be a werewolf, but now I'm not. And she's like, do Will you, you still me? like me? Do you still love me? Or Yeah, like me. And, and he's... He doesn't really say anything. But no. They I, just start... He starts kissing because he, he doesn't... Yeah. I don't know why he would ever fully care because he certainly doesn't seem to have a side in this, right? Like, he's an American who did not fight in the yeah, war. Yeah, he's very... And he's yeah. clearly going to Germany, which means he doesn't care too much about what, you know, happened on the German side of the war either. At least that's the impression I was getting from him. It's like, he doesn't... He doesn't care enough that the Nazis did what they did. He's just sort of, like, coasting through life and doing whatever. Yeah, he's kind of, like, aloof Yes, about very aloof. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, but yeah, so then they, you know, do it on the model train <laughs> while right, the father yeah, slowly that, that was, dies and then well, like the train yeah, breaks and everything yeah, that goes was odd because she's just like, I want to show you something. And she pulls the cover of that train. Uh-huh. It's all just sort of act as a metaphor mm-hmm. and then also a little bit of foreshadowing since we see the train plunging Falling. off the tracks. Yeah. Foreshadowing for this episode too. Spoilers. Um, but yeah, that's when the most color happens is when they find the father and like all the blood is rushing in the water underneath the door. Yeah. And everything. Um, but again, I, if you guys know why the color is there for sure, then let us know. <laughs> but, uh, we think it has something to do with like emotional state. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe it had to do with danger because there's some points where like the emergency brake itself was in color and he was in black and white and he was pulling it. Mm. Um, so maybe it like had to do with, like, danger. And so even though, like, you're looking at Kate, she's in color the first time so he sees like, him. So, like, she's dangerous. dangerous but yeah. he's also in color sometimes. So is he a danger to someone, to or, her? Or a danger to himself? I don't know. Yeah. So those, those are the couple things I thought of. It was, like, most vulnerable emotional moments and then also maybe just insinuating danger. Uh, but time passes and they eventually marry. Uh, oh, I'm kind of skipping over a couple of plot points, but I don't know how much it matters <laughs> too much. Um, there's a point where they have like a funeral, an illegal funeral for the, for the dad and they, um, Leo's pushed through the train cars, uh, to show that there are like Holocaust victims who are still, you know, in the train. I'm not sure if that's meant to be sort of like a flashback type of a thing or if they're being transported away from the concentration camps to safety now? I didn't that's, know. I was... I had no that's, idea. I was also confused, because I was like, are, yeah, are they flashbacking to when that train was used? Yeah, was that like a way for us and, that and was, Leo to realize, oh, this is what the trains were used for? That's I what know. I thought what was happening. Yeah. But there's no real, like... Despite the visual way that the movie is presented there's no like um fantasy elements like that Mm -hmm. other places you know 
Like, there's nothing in this movie that isn't necessarily real. It's just presenting in a different way. So, to sort of create this hallucination, or whatever you would want to call it, of, of these these people in, in the train would be weird. If that's what it was. Anyway, they're married. Um, <laughs> the werewolf man, Siggy, who smuggled the kids, he's still in the picture. Threatens Kate. Um kills Larry. Yeah. Which I mean we don't really get to know Larry too much in this. He yeah, has he a couple just, scenes. Yeah, he arrived, gave his thoughts and then that was it. Yeah. I don't know. Didn't, didn't have a whole lot of uh didn't have a whole lot of screen time. Um and then Siggy basically says in order to save Kate, we want you to blow up the Bremen line. Um here's some explosives, plant them at this stop and then uh and then we'll save save your wife if you commit this act of terrorism on behalf yeah. of the werewolves. Um, and then, of course, the exam is still happening at the same time. Colonel Harris is trying to get information about what he knows about Kate and the werewolves and the dad and everything else and stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, th- things are escalating. He's trying to plant this bomb to save his wife, but also pass a test. Yes, and the test part takes so much screen time. Yeah, I was way like, too much screen time for everything else. I don't know. I would if that was going on in my life, I wouldn't even want to take the test. <laughs> yeah, it's at the point where he's like, "Why can't he just say I don't care about this promotion?" Yeah, like, if he do knows he has to save more? his like wife what? by doing this other thing, and that's what he actually plans to do, mm-hmm. then say, "Forget it. I'll find another job. I need to do this other thing. Sorry." Goodbye. I, I don't know. Or what if, yeah, what if he just didn't, what if he just stayed as the whatever train conductor? Yeah, and just didn't get the promotion at that And not get point. a promotion at that, yeah. Yeah, who knows. I was like, why does this test have to happen exactly at that time? Because it's supposed to be a surprise exam, right? And they don't know I that guess. the train's in danger. He only knows that. Yeah. Even Colonel Harris doesn't know that. He's, you know, trying to decide whether or not to tell him, I guess. Um, but yeah, things continue to escalate to the point where he eventually gets a gun. And right. starts shooting through the cabin. Um, he stops the he train. Starts, he gets a little... Uh, plants the explosives, then changes his mind. There's yeah. like a... Um, like, his mental health is deteriorating in front of our eyes. I don't know. Yes. He's... Um, so yeah, all kinds of different stuff happens. Don't really want to say everything. Yeah. Because I don't fully remember the exact timeline of it all, for one. Um, It was a lot of back and forth. I mean, he plants the bomb, but then, you know, has to take that test. And then while he was in the middle of planting that bomb, someone took his hat. And then his uncle was like, you have to wear your hat. So then he's wearing like this... This towel or whatever yeah. and then he's Just running around covered. frantically with a towel on his head which is probably supposed to be some sort of symbolism that i don't understand uh i i would have i have a feeling it has some sort of like i don't know connection to like a past military thing oh okay that i just don't know um but yeah. he's like sweating <laughs> profusely and stuff mm-hmm. to the point where the narrator is like, you're going to pass out in, at the count of three. Yeah. Like, Or you're going to faint at the count of three. 
So, and you know, he faints. Yeah, he faints. He faints. Um, but he tries to disable the bomb. Political intrigue happens. You know, it's it's sort of a tense moment. I think at that mm-hmm. point, I'm still not following everything as well as I need to be following it for it to be incredibly tense. I'm more focusing on the visual side of things still while all this is happening. Like, I'm watching yeah. him, like, run in front of the rear projection of, like, the, the stopwatch. Or, you know, you know, have the, the shot of, um, you know, like, him, I don't know, in color with other stuff in the back. Uh, you know, all the kind of stuff that we've talked about before mm-hmm. happens throughout the movie, and it's always interesting. Um, but at some point, the, the bridge does blow up, not because of his bomb, but because of someone else's bomb. Or someone else setting a bomb, I think, is what happened, right? I don't fully know, I think, well, after he, yeah, I think after he... We just watched this movie last night. Yeah, I know. (laughs) There was just, like, that last 20 minutes was, like, that's when everything happened. It's a whirlwind, yeah. So after, I think, he tries to detonate that bomb or, like, you know, try to make sure it doesn't go off... You know, I think his wife and then that Siggy guy are in the car honking alongside the train. Like, hey, get off the train because we want to save you too. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. It could be. I thought that was her like honking like, hey, I it's time it to get like, off. I thought it was hey, you better do this quick. Oh, well, I, I, maybe Either both. one could be right. Yeah. <laughs> either one could be right. It was like, can you do this now and then like jump off so I can save you so we can be together. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And then... You know, you hear you have that car driving alongside, honking and honking, and then all of a sudden he's taking that test, mm-hmm. and all these things are just escalating, and that's you know he passes out, and then yeah, the train, a bomb goes off. The, yeah, the the bridge blows, the train is sinking into the river below, um, and then the narrator says, "On the count of ten, you will be dead." Mm-hmm. And he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then as his it's scary as shit to me. <laughs> that was that was, ugh, that was probably the most disturbing scene. Yeah, that that was yeah, like in ten seconds he will die, and Cause, then uh, it, yeah, because he drowns, and that's like a huge, right. huge personal fear of mine. It's, I hate watching that on film. Even it's like that, um, yeah, that stuff is just but then traumatizing. Also after consider. yeah yeah. Also after he dies, the narrator is still talking, saying, "Your body will float." Yeah. Out of the train car, there's people up above you, you know. Playing try- in the water. Oh, yeah, yeah, these people have survived while you have died. Yeah. yeah. And then that's pretty, the The movie ends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we kind of gloss over some of the other, like, political side of things. But yeah, right. it, does, it does touch on themes of, you know, colonization in a sense um you know like a lot of post-war stuff like even though the the battle and the bombings have stopped there's still fighting that happens there's still the residual stuff that happens there's still the evils of war that takes other forms which i think it does touch on especially like with you know the american occupation and and you know some of the stuff that they're doing to to suit their needs at the detriment to the german people um and all these other kind of things that are that are going on that stuff is touched on to a degree just not very much mm-hmm. or not to you know like a it doesn't beat you over the head with it which i'm sure is what they wanted is to you know leave it sort of simple like that 
Uh, but yeah, that's basically how the movie goes. Check yeah, out the website for the screenshots because I want you to at least get a sense of what the movie looks like. And I think that might draw some people in, even if you don't care so much about the subject matter. Like, just watch it for the visual and the filmmaking side of things. And, and you know, I think that's probably where it's mm-hmm. going to be most worthwhile. Yeah, I don't want to talk about like every single scene but yeah. I mean, we talked about the major yeah, ones that were the spoiled. most impactful i mean yeah yeah we always spoil we things. assume that people have seen this or just want to hear us talk about it i don't know yeah it's tough to know um anyway let's talk a little bit about the casting crew we already talked about laura's brand trier to a degree uh he was oscar nominated uh for dancing in the dark but not for directing it was a co-nomination for original song they shared with mm. Bjork and, and Sjone. I don't know how to pronounce that. S-J-O-N. Um, did not win, of course. Uh, he won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for Dancer in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And he was nominated for several other films, including this one. Breaking the Waves, The Idiots, Dogville, Manderley, Antichrist, and Melancholia. You've probably heard of some of those. Um... <laughs> uh, I don't know, Antichrist. I never saw. I never saw it. Uh, that's that's his attempt at horror, from what I know. That's all I know about uh, it. He has a most recent one that's supposed to be another attempt at horror oh, about, okay. about a serial killer that's supposed to be really disturbing. Okay. Called, called that, The House That Jack Built. Yeah, I just, that tracks. I heard, <laughs> that tracks I heard, be disturbing. I just heard a lot about it, and then... It made me want to see it, but I am also scared to see it. <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. Uh, but he's always an interesting filmmaker, if nothing else. Um, Jean-Marc Barr, who played Leo, I mentioned that he was the director of The Lovers, or I'm sorry, I think it's just called Lovers, uh, which is a Dogman 95 movie. Um, he was also in a couple other Lars von Trier movies. He's in uh, The Big Blue and Big Sur beyond that. Uh, probably the biggest star out of this, at least at the time, was probably Barbara Su- uh, Barbara Sukawa, who played Catherine Kate. Um, at least in Europe, she was probably the biggest star. Uh, she had been in uh, Lola and Rosa Luxemburg, where she won uh, the Best Actress Award at Cannes. Um, she's gone on to do uh, Hannah Arendt. As the lead role, she'd been stuff like Johnny Mnemonic as well. Um, so, uh, Udo Kier is probably the most known to us on the West side uh, because he does a lot of stuff in the U.S. Um, he was he, he played Larry. Uh, we'll see him again in 1991's My Own Private Idaho, uh, but he got to start with doing stuff like uh, in the U.S. He got to start doing stuff like Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. He's been in Suspiria, as well as Barbed Wire, and a whole bunch of other stuff. We'll talk about him later. Uh, but I don't have a whole lot of cast and crew notes, because a lot of these people were in um, primarily European movies that I don't recognize. So yeah. I don't know how notable they are. Um, one person I will mention is Colonel Harris, who's played by Eddie Constantine. Uh, personally, I did not think that his performance in this was very good at all. I thought he was probably the worst actor of them all. Uh, the so uh, like his voice, I I don't know if this was like on purpose, but it sounded as if like he was talking dubbed. I know? think everybody was. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. I think I think all of the audio was post. 
Okay. I think everybody's But his was dialogue, like the most. <laughs> the, his was probably, yeah, It was confusing me. I was like, is he dubbed in English? <laughs> yeah. No, but, I mean, I think, I think all of, all of the dialogue and all of the sound effects and everything were done in post-production. Okay. That's what it seemed like to me. This movie had a very classic 30s, 40s vibe throughout the mm-hmm. entire production. And the sound quality is part of that. But yeah, Eddie Constantine, uh, he was born in America, but he spent a lot of his time in uh, Europe. Um, He did a lot of movies where he played this sort of character. He also did a lot of movies where he played um, a specific character name called Lemmy Caution, uh, Mm -hmm. starting as early as 1953 in a movie called Poison Ivy, probably most notably in the movie Alphaville. But he's played that exact same character, Lemmy Caution, in stuff like movies called Macaroni Blues, Springtime in Vienna, um, and also another 1991 movie that I cannot find available for U.S. consumption called Germany Year 90-90, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Mm. So if that becomes available, we'll watch it at some point. We'll see Eddie Constantine again as his signature character, Lemmy Caution. In terms of awards, um, focusing only on the the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it won several. It won the Best Artistic Contribution Prize, which I don't know if that's done every single year or not. Um, it won the Jury Prize, uh, which it was tied with Out of Life or Or, de, or La Vie. Um, and it also won the Technical Grand Prize, which certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for the Palme d'Or. There's 19 films nominated in total. But Barton Fink, which we've already talked about, that one. Right. And famously, Lars von Trier walked out and gave everyone the finger as he lost that prize. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> which do you I think mean, is better? Barton Finker? I like Barton Fink. Okay. <laughs> I don't know which to you. I mean, visually, I don't... This is... Like, I can understand why he got mad, because he probably... There's some similar Spent thematic elements to yeah. both of these. They're very, I don't know, similar in tone as well, I would say. Similar yeah. in terms of like progression and escalation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everything escalate. both movies, the everything just, I guess it is, they're both a slow build and everything escalates to that last 20 minutes. Yeah, but there's more happening in this from scene to scene than there was in Barton Fink. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. We'll talk about rankings and ratings in a bit, but I don't know. Depending on the day, I could go either way with it. I think today I'm probably going to say that this is slightly better, mostly just because of the visuals. On to true crime and pop culture. Uh, Every time I look up a movie and then I find stuff out about like an actor or the director, there's controversy surrounding Lars von Trier with sexual harassment. Okay. And I was like, can we please not? Can, yeah, can there be <laughs> Like, can people do better? Person? Yeah, the only thing I saw was that he left his first wife for his second wife, I think. Uh, he left his first wife for, like, the babysitter, basically. Mm-hmm. But I briefly saw that Bjork... Uh, complained about or filed like a sexual harassment mm. suit against him while working 
on Dancer in the Dark. Mm. And it sounded as if he was saying she was the one that was, quote, calling all the shots or whatever. Okay. And I I didn't delve into it because I was like, not again. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, every time we watch a movie, someone yeah. has done something shitty to mostly a woman. Most always the man in power, of course, yeah. So I, I, I saw it on, I, I just saw it briefly on Wikipedia and I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to really talk. I'm not going to delve into like his controversies. because Just I'm, know that they're there if you want to. Yeah, know that them. they're there. And when I saw that, I just rolled my eyes. I was like, not again. Can people do better, please? So I'm going to move on to like TV okay. that was going on. Because this movie was on May, released on May 12th, 1991, which was a Sunday, on ABC. At 7 p.m. was the show called World of Discovery, which is just, you know, a nature show. Mm. It was about crocodiles. After that was America's Funniest Home Videos. I've heard of it. Uh-huh. Probably watching it. <laughs> uh-huh. After that was America's Funniest People. Yes. With uh, uh, Dave uh, Coulier, Dave Coulier yeah. and Tony Katane. Tony Katane. Did they do? They did both. She she wasn't always the co-host. It morphed at some point. But yeah. yeah. On CBS, uh, was sixty minutes, and then after that was Murder She Wrote. On Fox, was a TV starting at seven p.m. Was a TV show called True Colors. Have you heard of this show? No. I know the movie it, by that name. Th- this I has, think there's an, there's a 1991 movie, right? Two Colors? I think so. So this is a sitcom that it lasted two seasons. It stars uh, Fra- Frankie Faison. Do you know who he is? Mm-hmm. Play, playing a Ronald Freeman, who is a widowed African-American dentist in Baltimore. Baltimore, who marries Ellen Davis, played by Stephanie Faraci or Faraci. She's been. Sound familiar. She has been. She's like a character actress. Like if I show you a picture of her, you will know okay. who she is. I just don't know her name. She has been in like almost every, like comedy in the seventies, eighties. Okay. All the way up to now. She was like in Hocus Pocus. She was in Sideways. She was in Mike and Dave Never. Or Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. Like she's just like in just a everywhere. million. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a fun life to just be like a character actor and just do like little bit roles. Yeah. On like a million things. So, okay. So Ronald Freeman, a widowed African-American dentist in Baltimore, Baltimore who marries... Ellen Davis, a divorced white kindergarten teacher who was one of his patients. Ron has two sons, a 17-year-old named Terry, played by someone named Claude Brooks. I couldn't find much about him. And then a 14-year-old son played named Lester, but played by someone by the name of Adam Jeffries, which I couldn't find too much but he was in the movie ghost dad okay 
and very little other stuff. But he did win a Young Artist Award for this show. Hmm. Yeah, I don't recognize it. I mean, I watched a decent amount of Fox back then. And then, you know, Ellen has a teenage daughter. So, you know, it's about a blended family. It lasted for two seasons. But in the second season... So in the first season, Frankie Faison plays the lead character. But he was replaced by Clevon Little. Clavon okay. Little? Yeah. You know who he is? From Blazing Saddles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was... He played the lead character in the second season. Huh. But it didn't say why or what happened i've i don't know why much he was about replaced it. i i have a feeling it's because i've heard rumors that frankie Bazon is is very difficult oh to work with yeah so maybe it has something to do with that and i don't know if this is the reason why the show was canceled but um cleavon little died in 1992 mm. like during the filming of it or maybe right after after the second season filmed hmm. you'd think it'd almost be like reverse where like he gets replaced because he died and then they bring in Frankie and maybe Faison. i mean but, yeah i don't know yeah. if it was canceled before that yeah or after be. and they were like we don't want to find a third replacement yeah so that was on fox 7 okay. p.m after that Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I know that one. Have a DVD of it. Definitely watching that. <laughs> or watched it, that. After that was In Living Color. Yeah. Fox watched was that, on like, fire. The, even like the later years I watched that. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. After that was a show that I forgot about. And I was like, oh my god. But the show Get a Life. Do you remember this? Yeah. I never really watched it though. I have copies of the DVDs. Oh, really? But never took the time to watch them. I know it's like a cult favorite. Yeah. It, it was, you know, this lasted two seasons, too. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, Chris Elliott, who plays a 30-year-old paper, paper boy, still lives with his parents. Yeah. And, and it has the R.E.M. stand as the yeah. theme song. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cult classic for anyone who's interested. I think, yeah, I think, um, like, Rhino or somebody does it. So, um distributes it so it's probably on like Tubi or or oh okay one of those more free services or pluto or something uh so the writers for that show were charlie kaufman and bob odenkirk oh interesting so wasn't really aware that charlie kaufman did like sitcom yeah i know i saw that i was like oh interesting yeah and then you know the creators were adam resnick who was a writer for david letterman and then writer director david merkin who was you know he did he was a producer for new heart and then the simpsons Hmm. so yeah you got those people writing that show after that was married with children was not allowed to watch it that's interesting So after Married with Children was a spinoff of Married with Children, and I didn't know there were spinoffs, but I guess there were three spinoffs of Married with Children. Okay. And this show called Top of the Heap, which I've never even heard of, but it had two lesser known characters. I used to, like I sorta of remember some people from Married with Children, but I don't remember 
these people. So I had two minor characters from Married with Children, one of them being Matt LeBlanc. Okay. So it's a was, father. Does that mean Matt LeBlanc was in Married with Children? I suppose so. Okay. I don't know what <laughs> these people were to, in relation to the family, like right. the, the Bundys, I guess. Because I don't remember these guys at all. But every once in a while, like Ed O'Neill and Christina Applegate and then David Faustino, those were the only three people that would guest star on this show. Okay. And it only lasted six... It was one season, but six episodes. And this episode that was on this night was the fifth episode. So next week, it would have been canceled or done with the penultimate of the heap yeah yeah okay yeah and I don't know that yeah that after that was a sketch comedy or not really a sketch comedy but a stand-up show called the sunday comics have you heard of this isn't it yeah it's just it was it's like a I'm variety of... it's, it's basically is it just stand-up yeah but it's every week was a different person and then from what I've seen, a different host. But it's it's like one host with like three or four different stand-ups within yeah. like an hour or something like that. Yeah. Or half hour. I tried to look it up on YouTube. There were a couple episodes, but not this one. But I did find one that was in January that had Weird Al in it. Okay. Maybe we'll find a January Sunday movie that we can watch. Well, that or maybe point. somewhere that was close to that release date. Or one of these watch. movies that doesn't have a definitive release date. We'll have to figure yeah. out what to do with. And for, I looked up the top one, the hot 100 charting for that week for Billboard Top 100. And this is from May 12th to May 18th, 1991. I'm just going to do. I guess the top five, but also talk about some other random ones that popped up. Okay. So the top five for that week, number one was High Fives, I Like the Way, you know, the kissing game. Mm-hmm. Number two, which I'm going to want to do another mini episode about was Kathy Dennis, the song Touch Me, All Night Long. Uh-huh. Number three is CC Music Factory, Here We Go, which I... That song... That's right. one you'll know if you hear it. See, now now I don't know a song that you know. I don't know how know. it goes off the top of my head, but like, you know all of CNC Music Factory's okay. like hits. You just don't <laughs> it know It was like, here name. we go, all right. <laughs> And number four was The Divinals, I Touched Myself. And then number five was Rod Stewart's Rhythm of My Heart. Okay. Which, uh, I that was played a lot. I don't like Rod Stewart. In the grocery store from 1996 to 2001. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, for the past 20 weeks. So it was Whitney Houston's The Star Spangled Banner, which is probably the best song version of the Star Spangled Banner that I've heard. I don't know who's done better than Whitney Houston's version. It 
surprises me that. But that was that on the that was on the radio, I guess. Yeah, like is this sales? Like, was it released for sale? Like a single, I'm assuming. But I don't know if I've heard it. Maybe it's like a charity thing on the radio. No, it was number ninety-eight. Yeah, I don't think I would have ever heard it on the radio. Was on the chart for twenty weeks. Yeah, it's like, you know how everyone talks about Prince's Super Bowl halftime show yeah, yeah. now? Like, but, everyone was talking about, like, the Whitney Houston Star Spangled Banner for a long time as well back then. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I agree with you. Like, it's possibly the best rendition of the, the anthem that, that's ever been done, but it's weird that it's charting <laughs> and for so many weeks. Right, and then another thing that popped out was the Rembrandts, just the way it is, baby, because I did not know that was the Rembrandts, because I thought the Rembrandts only did one song, and that was I'll Be There For You. So we have two friends, two pre-friends, friends references yes, this week. Yes, this week. Yes. And, yeah, I've heard... I know that song because, once again, working in a grocery store from 1996 to... <laughs> from the listening. late 90s to the early 2000s was all easy listening music. Yeah. So then on to rankings and ratings. So on your one to five star scale, where are you going to put Europa slash Zentropa? I think I'm going to give this a four, but... I liked Barton Fink more. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go sort of opposite of you. I I think I do like this one more just from the visual standpoint. Um, I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of 4 on my star scale. I think I gave Barton Fink a 3. Okay. Um, Well, I think you did also do 3 because I convinced you to oh, did I raise it, a, it half? a half a star. Maybe. So they both have three and a half. All right. Well, if that's the well, case. Or you raised it from two and a half to three. Yeah, I, that might have been. I do remember you helped me bump it up. But uh, yeah, this, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, yeah, this is a 3.5. Um, I think if there was more story depth to it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was hypnotic, but basically just because it was just amazing to watch. Uh, not so much the plot stuff. So, uh, every movie is worth watching once. Would you watch it again? Not like voluntarily. <laughs> I don't know. Like with Bart of Fink, I wish I knew about that movie. I knew about it, but I wish I knew that I should have watched it when I was a teen because that's the type of movie I would have watched over and over and over again just to, like, figure it out. Mm. This movie... There's less to figure out. Yeah, this. there was less to figure out. Yeah. and But I would watch, like, a Criterion, you know, commentary to know, like, exactly what Lars von Trier was using the color for. Yeah, if and, he and that does, does explain exist. that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he explains it, but there is a Criterion edition with Lars von Trier commentary, so that does exist. And I'm, I'm, I would agree. I would say I'd probably watch it with either like, yeah, it, with some sort of film discussion afterwards, or as part of the, the watching, the viewing. I would probably watch it that way. So, uh, but if you out there want to watch Europa as of this recording in July 2021. 
It's available on HBO Max, Criterion Channel, Canopy, VHS, or DVD. As always, check your local listings. As for us, you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. It really does help us out a lot. You can email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Just search 1991movierewind. Or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we're going to watch The Pit and the Pendulum, which is available on Tubi, Pluto TV, Digital Rental, VHS, and DVD. We will see you then. Thanks.